Episode 2, Bob and the Band, The Road to Carnegie Hall, 20th of January 1968. At Carnegie Hall in January 1968, the band was still, in their own words, no more than Bob Dylan's scrounge road group. They looked like a Talmudic study circle from Tombstone, their rabbis suitably besuited, bearded and booted, in Lillian Roxon's concert review, so changed, serene, smiling, oddly respectable in his grey suit and open check blue shirt. For Grail Marcus, the frontier analogy conveyed a darker impression. Only a few years earlier, the Hawks had been snappy dressers with hip haircuts and sharp suits, but now they looked and sounded like the Earp Brothers and Doc Holliday cleaning out the last pockets of resistance at the OK Corral. Purist folk devotees backstage or out front doubtless viewed Dylan's sidemen with deep suspicion, but they were clearly in a minority. Bob and his band generated huge expectation and huge goodwill. The Crackers was a 10-day sobriquet, lasting from the concerts to the band-to-be's February signing with Capitol Records. With hindsight, and scarcely surprising the five anonymous musicians on stage at Carnegie Hall sounded so similar to the band. After all, they were already recording tracks for their debut album at A&R Studios just a few streets away. Their rural sojourn in upstate New York had bequeathed them a fresh focus and direction, enabling them to retain an association with Dylan while becoming artists in their own right. In a remarkable 18-month period, the band would release two extraordinarily influential albums and find themselves a headlined act at the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. In his memoir, This Wheel's on Fire, drummer and de facto leader Levon Helm recalled how, when the group arrived at the concert hall, someone asked who they were. Helm answered with his home state's pejorative term for poor southern white folks. Renewed controversy in recent years over the term cracker means there is no way the moniker could be used today. The Crackers had attitude, and they had history. As Nick Cohn writes, at the height of their fame, the band came from nowhere specific and their evocations were indistinct, but they were the whole of the American past in all its space. The Hawks had been on the road in various incarnations since the late 50s. They started as veteran rocker Ronnie Hawkins' backing band, and numerous journeymen players passed through their ranks before natural selection created a union of five top-notch instrumentalists. Hawkins and Helm both hailed from Arkansas, but they hired mainly Canadian musicians. Hawkins was hugely popular in Ontario, especially after an underage but highly talented James Robbie Robertson was brought on board to play lead guitar. By 1963, the Hawks became fixed as four Canadians and one Southerner, with Helm and Robertson joined by Rick Danko on bass, Garth Hudson on organ and Richard Manuel on piano. Each of them sang and they all played more than one instrument. This was the beat combo which split from Hawkins and which in succeeding years seemed scarcely aware of the British invasion. Robertson recalled in testimony how they jammed with Sonny Boy Williamson soon after he came back to Mississippi from touring with the Yardbirds. In Europe, Williamson flattered his young admirers, but back home he assured the Hawks that they were in a different league from aspiring white bluesmen the far side of the Atlantic. By the time of Rubber Soul, the Beatles seemed to have left behind early Motown artists, Chuck Berry and the myriad of other black musical influences underpinning the original Mersey sound, an impression reinforced by the decision to stop touring. From Liverpool to LA, where the Beatles led, other groups followed. A mixture of commercial imperative and musical curiosity saw the likes of The Animals, The Yardbirds and Paul Butterfield looking beyond Chicago blues and Detroit R&B. As Elijah Wold points out in the aptly titled How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, these were the earliest signs of what emerged post-Sergeant Pepper as a new album-focused form of popular music, soon familiar to one and all as rock with a capital R. The Hawks wanted success, and that meant writing a hit single, 
but at the same time they prided themselves on staying faithful to the music that they'd always played. Whether on their own or with Ronnie Hawkins, this group was anything but a slave to fashion. There is a double irony here in that by 1970, the band's first two albums would be cited as evidence that rock music was something more than a transient phenomenon in a youth culture obsessed with the familiar and superficial. And yet that strong sense of permanence and solidity was rooted in the same fixation on continuity and musical tradition, which had seen the Hawks refine but never compromise their delivery of high-octane barroom dance music rooted in both black and, by Memphis and New Orleans, white urban experiences. The Hawks ploughed their preferred furrow, and in a mid-60s America fixated on the Beatles, the Beach Boys and the Birds, Levon and the Hawks looked and sounded old-fashioned. They were going nowhere until the day Bob Dylan phoned Robertson to see if his band was free to tour. At that point, everything changed, as from September 1965 to May 1966, they crossed three continents, dividing audiences with a requisite display of suitable aggression and a readiness to shock. The Hawks scarcely featured in the studio, but each night on stage they effortlessly translated the thin, wild mercury music of Blonde on Blonde and its immediate predecessors into a loud and powerful experience, which fans either loved or loathed. The combination of Dylan's sneering, snarling, slurring voice and Robertson's piercing, penetrating pinpoint guitar work created something wholly unique. A transgressive sound, intrinsically powerful, intense and, above all, disturbing. The Hawks were on a steep learning curve, but so too was Dylan. Robertson urged him to park an obsession with lyrics and in doing so to rediscover the exciting and elemental nature of stripped-down, supremely crafted rhythm and blues. A lot less Jack Kerouac and a lot more Curtis Mayfield. Dylan served a fast-track apprenticeship in playing live with the seasoned musicians, four of whom relied as much on instinct as expertise. As confirmed once the band went on the road, this was a collective endeavour rooted in both camaraderie and conviction. In other words, each member's supreme belief in the musical accomplishment of his fellow players. As Grail Marcus inelegantly pointed out in Mystery Train, the marriage of his, Dylan's, linguistic instincts, his hipster savvy and his unmatched feel for the mysteries of the American song to the Hawks' training and flair took them to places they could never have reached alone. Rooted in jazz, Garth Hudson had eclectic musical tastes, but even he shared the other Hawks' preoccupations with the blues, R&B, rockabilly and the rawest forms of country and rock and roll. Before being hired by Bob Dylan, they knew nothing about his songs other than the hits heard on AM radio. After they met Dylan, the band's circle of associates expanded dramatically, but they still felt most comfortable with like-minded musicians, whether white or black. Even after the retreat to upstate New York and Dylan's crash course in the American tradition, it's hard to imagine the likes of Richard Manuel sipping beer in a village folk club while listening respectfully to successive purveyors of wooden music. An exception was aspiring songwriter Robbie Robertson, whose session work and openness to new ideas brought him into contact with the East Coast folk scene. When the other artists at Carnegie Hall introduced themselves to Dylan's accompanists, Robertson was the one familiar face. The hostility experienced by the Hawks when they joined up with Dylan had seen Levon Helm soon leave, appalled by the confrontational nature of the early shows. His discomfort was compounded by the immediate installation of Bobby Gregg, the drummer on both Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited, in turn making way for Mickey Jones, an ex-cabaret accompanist and unsung hero of the Dylan story. Helm reappeared only after his bandmates had settled into Woodstock. Then still an obscure artist colony and urged him to join them there, he never left. On the 20th of January 1968, 
Audience abuse and aggression was almost unthinkable, but backstage before the afternoon concert, there was surely a degree of suspicion, especially among the older performers. No wonder Helm suggested a name synonymous with white trash. The Crackers joined Dylan in subverting a sombre, worthy and fitfully joyful occasion, playing, in the view of one observer, on a different plane from their fellow performers. For 13 minutes, matinee and evening, they worked their way through a raunchy, rackety and raw cassette comprising of Grand Coulee Dam, Dear Mrs Roosevelt and I Ain't Got No Home. The setlist seen by veteran academic and journalist Sean Willens as rooting Guthrie's work historically in a particular time, the time of Dylan's early boyhood and in an already bygone America, even as it channelled the work into a sound unlike anything anybody had ever heard before, meaning the music laid down in Woodstock the previous year. Grell Marcus memorably described Grand Coulee Dam as a drunken rockabilly rave-up at the party thrown by the men who built the thing on the night they opened the spillway for the first time. One or two younger members of the audience even dared to dance in the aisles. Throughout the first set, Sue C. Clarke from Rolling Stone couldn't stop laughing, although no one reading her dry, no-nonsense report could guess that she had such a great time. Perhaps not so surprisingly, given the audience, a much fuller and more exuberant review appeared in The New Yorker. Pete Seeger stared disapprovingly, but according to Robert Shelton, he soon started drumming the back of a guitar. Talking to Shelton at the Sheraton Plaza Hotel between concerts, Robbie Robertson warned, just wait for tonight. And indeed, the evening performance was even louder and livelier than the matinee, leaving fans at the end of the night demanding more Dylan. Levon Helm reckoned, our evening show brought down the house, Bob tore it up. Barney Hoskins labelled both sets an explosion of lusty energy, in the midst of the wholesome right onness display by Dylan's old folk chums. I Ain't Got No Home and Grand Coulee Dan were familiar Dust Bowl New Deal anthems, but lodged between them was a scarcely known lament for President Roosevelt. Roosevelt, as in Franklin Delano, and not his turn-of-the-century predecessor Theodore, although, surprisingly, Eleanor Roosevelt's Uncle Teddy is the president Dylan chooses to compliment in Chronicles. He could have stepped out of a folk ballad. Arrangement and delivery of all three songs may have been mildly shocking to anyone seduced by the more recently released John Wesley Harding into imagining measured, melodic and respectful renderings of firm favourites. Yet the lazy, loping and undeniably loud sound was consistent with the stripped-back, disrespectful, earthy projection of people's music which Guthrie had claimed came naturally to black bluesmen like Lead Belly and which few white singers were capable of embracing. A now-famous field trip to the Mississippi Delta in the late 50s had seen the musicologist Alan Lomax arrive at a similar conclusion, albeit expressed in more elevated terms. The psychological makeup of white singers left them emotionally constrained by comparison with their Negro counterparts. Levon Helm and his boys had devoted their lives to disproving Lomax's theory. The prevailing influence was rockabilly, with Manuel's honky-tonk piano and Hudson's growling organ and ever-present behind the clean guitar breaks and snappy fills which became Robertson's trademark once the band began performing in their own right later that year. In their sound, if no longer in their appearance, Dylan's gang still projected the rock and roll persona that had proved so divisive two years earlier. Dylan hollered every verse as if addressing a Teamsters meeting, and yet Dear Mrs Roosevelt sounded surprisingly melodic, thanks largely to the band-to-be's trademark harmonising on the chorus and the fade. Robertson felt sure Guthrie would have approved. Interviewed years later for a history of the band, he defended their approach, maintaining that if a song is going to live, it must live in its contemporary surrounding. In January 68, that meant a fusion of the folk tradition and electric instrumentation. 
The centrality of the electric guitar to popular music since the early 1950s was self-evident, but what constituted the American folk tradition remained highly contestable. Witness the challenge laid down that day by Dylan and his sidemen. Ever since the birds took flawless covers of Dylan and Seeger songs to the top of the charts in 1965, an assortment of artists had sought similar success. The resulting records were invariably sanitised and saccharine. The same could not be said for the music Dylan played at the Guthrie Benefit concerts. This was folk music as raw, intense and personal as the day it was written, and rendered even more so by the use of amplified instruments. The performance is seen by Willens as a finale for the basement tapes, but at the time, no one other than the six musicians on stage could see it that way. Tantalising insights into the music which Dylan and his one-time hawks had played across the past year would soon start to emerge, helping to forge a fresh understanding of the relationship between amplified instruments and respective folk traditions. From Boulder to Brooklyn and Belfast to Brest, a generation that had grown up with Dylan plugged in. Folk rock was too crude a description of the myriad of different musical approaches emerging on both sides of the Atlantic at the end of the 1960s, but Bob Dylan and his band had already signalled something fundamentally new. They knew this, as I suspected the more insightful members of the audience. But, with plans for a documentary film soon shelved, this was a prelude to revolution witnessed by only a privileged few. Concert reviews portrayed Dylan as the solitary king of cool, standing aloof and detached from the rest of the cast. Yet, as backstage shots confirm, the star performer was smiling and collegial. Unlike at Newport three years earlier, he showed due respect to Seeger and the other veteran performers gathered to salute their lost comrade. After the second show, Dylan joined the other artists at narrator Robert Ryan's apartment on the Upper West Side, in the Dakota building. Five years later, following the film star's death, the flat was acquired by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Ryan's party lasted until the early hours, with the cast joined by the likes of Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel and Allen Ginsberg. The star-studded Hootenanny constituted a cross-generational gathering of East Coast progressives. For all the big names present, this was a very private affair. The irony of singing songs about poverty and protest in an apartment overlooking Central Park is obvious, and everyone there was an easy target. Yet this was nothing like Leonard Bernstein's Park Avenue reception for the Black Panthers, the notorious manifestation of radical chic, so ruthlessly skewered by Tom Wolfe in New York magazine 30 months later. Ryan's hard man image on the screen belied his work as a peace activist and educationalist. He and Dylan shared an invisible connection, as both men went on to star in Sam Peckinpah movies. Within weeks of the tribute concerts, Ryan would be on location in Mexico, playing William Holden's nemesis in The Wild Bunch. Dylan diffused the mystique surrounding someone scarcely seen in public for 18 months. In reality, he had spent almost as much time in Manhattan as Woodstock, but out on the street his privacy was respected, or he was simply not recognised. When the time came for him to go out and perform, Dylan was crippled by nerves, as would be the case on the Isle of Wight 18 months later. Tom Paxton claims to have joked with Dylan and relaxed him just enough that he could walk out and face an audience desperate to avoid disappointment. The relief was palpable, claimed Paxton. My God, it was so exciting. The way he did it with the band there, that was wonderful. This was certainly one of the best experiences I've ever had in this whole mishmash. At the end of both performances, Dylan and the Crackers enthusiastically joined Seeger and the rest of the cast in the inevitable finale, the audience joined in with ever-increasing fervour on every chorus of This Land Is Your Land. Pete Seeger, McCarthyite victim and honoured keeper of the Guthrie Flame, had long since come to terms with Dylan's antipathy to being labelled a protest singer. As time passed, Seeger ruefully recognised the irony of his tearful attempt to silence the fallen angel's debut performance 
playing electric at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival. The offstage footage and festival, Murray Lerner's documentary record of Newport 65, shows Seeger's immediate sense of betrayal and his thwarted attempts to stop the show. Paul Nelson's festival reporting for Sing Out vividly conveyed Seeger's outrage over the divisive nature of Dylan's loud and iconoclastic scratch band. The next time Seeger saw Dylan perform was at Carnegie Hall. In his own begrudging way, he was complimentary, recognising the intensity of the Anointed One's performance and acknowledging that audience and press were keyed up not to mourn the death of Guthrie so much as to celebrate the return to life of Dylan. Most alarmingly for Seeger was when he found Mike Bloomfield backstage chatting with Dylan. Here in the bowels of Carnegie Hall was the malcontent who had played lead guitar that fateful day in Newport three years earlier. Seeger's fears of another Fender-led assault upon the ears were in due course assuaged by the crackers' respect for their visibly non-rock and roll audience. If they played a lot louder than the other performers, only a handful found offence in a set which triumphantly defied expectations. Seeger was alone in resenting the presence of electric guitars, or at least acoustic guitars with pickups. The same was true when the next fundraising event was staged at the Hollywood Bowl on 12th September 1970. The venue held 18,000 and the concert was sold out, so amplification via a reliable sound system was vital. Expectations were high, with an audience very different from the mourners who had gathered to pay their respects at the two shows in New York. By the autumn of 1970, headliners Joan Byers and Richie Havens were playing far fewer solo gigs. Their much-vaunted performances at Woodstock, captured in the consequent movie, meant that they were earning more and therefore could afford to hire seasoned musicians. Ironically, it was Seeger's protégé Arlo Guthrie who assembled a backing band of up-and-coming session men, which, unlike the Crackers, would be on stage for the whole show. Psychedelic showman country Joe MacDonald had reinvented himself as an acoustic counterculture troubadour. This was courtesy of a well-received Guthrie covers album, and more especially an anti-Vietnam fish cheer in Woodstock. The presumption that an LA tribute concert would generate a younger and hipper audience saw the crowd-rousing hero of Yazga's farm suggest the show end with a suitably profane rendering of the fixing to die rag, an idea immediately squashed by an image-conscious bias. Ahead of his appearance at the Hollywood Bowl, MacDonald was given an obscure set of lyrics by Woody's widow and invited to write a song. Nearly 30 years later, before Billy Bragg and Jeff Tweedy took on a similar challenge and recorded Mermaid Avenue, Country Joe and Ry Cooder turned the erotic musing of Women at Home into a loud... Lausch, into a loud Lausch blues number similar to the guitarist's soundtrack for performance. Woman at Home sounded like an outtake from the first Captain Beefheart album, confirming for Seeger, as he made clear to anyone in LA who would listen, that Dylan's presence at Carnegie Hall had opened the floodgates to amplified folk, a bastardisation of a people's music where artists and audience are presumed to be as one, with every performance a genuinely holistic experience. Both purist and polemicist, Pete Seeger always insisted that an audience best responded to a powerful song if those on stage were free from the trappings of ostensibly artificial instrumentation. The size of the venue was immaterial. Witness a banjo plucking Seeger on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial at Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration, calling every verse as he and Bruce Springsteen led the vast crowd in a mass rendering of This Land Is Your Land. You sing it with us, we'll give you the words. Back on the afternoon and evening of 20th of January 68, fans and critics alike were struck by the strength and power of Bob Dylan's voice. Reviewing both sets in the New York Times, Robert Shelton applauded performances of disarming originality. In the mid-50s, Shelton had seen his career as a political journalist shredded by Cold War manoeuvrings on Capitol Hill. 
In due course, he had reinvented himself as a music critic, famously acclaiming Dylan's support act at Gurdy's Folk City in September 61. On the strength of his New York Times review, Sheldon was invited to adopt a pen name and write the liner notes for Dylan's first album. Via the review columns of Hootenanny and the New York Times, Shelton chronicled and championed every step of the singer's career. Both men placed Woody Guthrie on a pedestal, and if anything, Shelton exceeded his protégé in lavishing praise on the sickly troubadour. Consequently, he became a close friend of Marjorie Guthrie. In 1965, Shelton accepted Marjorie's invitation to inspect the numerous boxes of unpublished material which Woody kept in the basement of the family home in Queens. The result was Born to Win, an anthology of prose and poetry, Title design and promotion all signalled Shelton's intention to sell the father hero of Bias Dylan et al. to a generation for whom Woody Guthrie was little more than a name. The selected lyrics, verse and trenchant observations on the state of the world ranged from the brilliant to the banal, with Shelton deaf to any suggestion that, for all his skills as an agent of agitprop, the man from Okamar was no literary giant. Although seen on the East Coast folk scene as a venerable father figure, at Newport in 1965, Shelton had responded to Dylan's set in a manner wholly at odds with that of Pete Seeger. In consequence, despite the difference in age, Robert Shelton remained on Dylan's radar even after he quit America for a new life in London at the end of the decade. Shelton's column in the New York Times confirmed just how eclectic his musical tastes were. At the time of the Carnegie Hall concerts, his favourite band was the Jeff Beck Group. Dylan going electric was a natural development, not a betrayal. In due course, the veteran critics' lengthy interviews with Dylan, most notoriously on an amphetamine fueled midnight flight across the Midwest in March 66, formed the basis for a wordy, if worthy, biography, No Direction Home. Grail Marcus may have found Shelton's magnum opus bleeding with incomprehension, but this didn't deter its most famous reader. In 2001, Bob Dylan informed a Spanish journalist that Shelton's book was the last he bought in order to discover Bob Dylan. It's difficult to read about yourself because in your own mind, things never happen in that way. It all seems like fiction. Robert Shelton's closeness to Dylan gave him privileged access to the 14 songs laid down in the Catskills and selected for circulation among various artists and record companies. In due course, he would immerse himself in all the other original songs and cover versions, which together make up the basement tapes. Shelton later labelled them cellar compositions, flawed ensembles, rough-hewn singing, unkempt instrumentalism, disbalances, distortion. Here were a hundred or so songs, all displaying the sheer bravura, intimacy and excitement which would define Dylan and the Crackers' successive sets at Carnegie Hall. The no-holds-barred creativity displayed by these six men across the year preceding the Guthrie concerts translated itself into what we now judge to be pivotal music. For the band, that music would soon be rooted in a particular historical perspective that of poor whites, generation on generation, scraping a living off the land across a timeline from the Depression back to the war between the states. Levon Helm lived 45 years in Woodstock, but the drummer stayed and died in the wool son of Arkansas until the day he died. Reunited with his old bandmates, Helm culturally relocated the four Canadians, and perhaps even the Minnesota-born Dylan, to south of the Mason-Dixon line. With Robinson, his amanuensis and interpreter, Levon Helm initiated a myth-making process which culminated two years later in the band's eponymous near-perfect second album. Yet when Helm first arrived in Woodstock, his erstwhile group remained a fledgling creative unit still in search of a voice. Their earliest compositions contrasted starkly with Dylan's songs, each of which boasted a unique voice, while at the same time sharing a universal joie de vivre. 
Here was the majesty, the maturity and the spontaneity of a re-energised artist on a creative high. It was as if Dylan had a cultural agenda, nothing less than a reshaping of popular music, but was too busy having a good time to perceive exactly what that agenda was. Nor did his fellow music makers, and yet the impact of music from Big Pink in the second half of 1968 left the band and not Dylan as the applauded agents of change. The first major outing for music from Big Pink was at Woodstock, where over half of the band's set derived from the basement tapes. In contrast, at the Isle of Wight, Dylan sang just three songs from his sojourn in West Sugatees. Few in the audience at either of the Guthrie concerts were aware just how much music making had taken place in rural upstate New York across the preceding summer and autumn. Illumination would come courtesy of the first bootleg recordings, illicitly available on both sides of the Atlantic by the close of the decade. However laid back the atmosphere at Big Pink, on 20th of January, Dylan displayed the same self-discipline and application which three months earlier had impressed the studio musicians in Nashville, hired to record a dozen songs written specifically for the next album. Gnomic and acoustic, John Wesley Harding had been generally well received on its release in late December. Some critics demurred, but in terms of record sales and popular appreciation, Bob Dylan was still riding a tide of goodwill. A perceptive review by Robert Christigau in Esquire recognised the album's reductive qualities. Dylan, for too long a word-crazy dramatist, had finally learnt the value of understatement. The stark contrast between John Wesley Harding and its immediate predecessors served only to heighten fans' expectations once it was known Dylan would appear at Carnegie Hall. Such songs as Drifter's Escape and I Pity the Poor Immigrant were seen as a salute to Guthrie, who had died only a fortnight before the Nashville sessions began. It later transpired that Pete Seeger was a huge fan of John Wesley Harding, relishing the stark instrumentation and the biblical underpinning. He saw the album as evidence of Bob Dylan emerging from some dark night of the soul. Seeger stubbornly refused to change his mind when evidence emerged that life at Birdcliffe, the Dylan family home in upstate New York, was nothing like the Slough of Despond. 